One of my favorite times, uh, favorite things about this time of year is Christmas lights. It's been a nice fall. It was a warm, balmy November so far. So the lights started to get up a little bit earlier. And I don't know about your neighborhood, but there's some, some pretty enthusiastic light putter-uppers in my neighborhood. Uh, we put up some of ours yesterday, and I think I've got to adjust them tonight. Uh, but I, I, I love it. I love how the, the color fills the night. I like how the bright white lights on, on our house will fill the night. I love how the town participates. It was, it was a couple of weeks ago already, I think, where we were driving on, on Main Street, and Main Street was starting to light up with Christmas lights. How at the shops of Canmore, they got the big boom man lift up and lit those trees right to the top. I love it. Light is, is really important this time of year because the days are still getting shorter. And so for nearly two-thirds of the day, if you want to see anything, you have to add light. Now this series we're starting this week that will carry us through to Christmas Eve is called Christmas Isn't Cancelled. In the midst of, of all that's going on and with, with everything changing and shifting around us, it, it absolutely feels like everything is different and so many things have been cancelled, but not Christmas. It's going to look different this year, absolutely, but on this first Sunday of Advent, we are still eagerly awaiting the celebration of Jesus' arrival. So we're going to spend the next four weeks and we're going to look at some uh, familiar Christmas texts. We're going to sing some familiar songs and we're going to be reminding ourselves of the gospel and reminding ourselves to celebrate Jesus. One writer has aptly said to, to understand Christmas is to understand basic Christianity. It's to understand the gospel. And so for the next few weeks, I hope you'll explore with me the basics of Christianity as we celebrate Advent together. And I trust that this series will be uh, beneficial and encouraging for both uh, those exploring faith or, or renewing their faith, as well as those digging deeper in their faith. And so Ian read our text for this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, as he mentioned verses 2 and then especially a bit later in chapter, or verses 6 and 7. So if we want to understand Christianity, we're, we're starting with the light. If we want to understand the gospel, we need to start with this sort of foundational understanding that, that the world is a dark place and we won't find our way unless Jesus is our light. In the first of the four gospels we have in, in Matthew, we see the verses that Ian read for us from Isaiah 2. They're quoted by Matthew as he writes. He says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and, and on those in the, the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A few weeks back here at Trinity, we also saw in John's gospel where, where he writes this about Jesus, that the true light gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him in John chapter 1. And so this morning we want to talk about light and darkness and light in the world and light coming into the darkness. And so just a, a question, a starting point. What are we talking about when we're talking about darkness in the Bible? There's a couple different things. But we could summarize, I think, darkness from a biblical perspective with, with really two words. Evil is one of them, but also ignorance is the other. Consider the, the world that Jesus was born into in the first century, in the Middle East. There's violence and injustice. There is homelessness. There was uh, refugees fleeing from oppression. There was grief, hardship, 
abuse of power, that list hasn't changed very much in 2,000 years, has it? And I think uh, there wouldn't be many in the world that would argue that there is still evil in the world today. The other way that we stay in the dark is this ignorance thing. I've been, I've been reading through the Psalms and through the, through the histories uh, in, in the Old Testament, through Kings and into Chronicles, and so often it says the, you know, the, the people forgot the way of the Lord. This king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they forgot what they were supposed to do and they went their own way. They were ignorant of the ways of the Lord. And so we, we also stay in the dark because uh, no one knows how to fix the evil. No one knows how to, to fix all the suffering in the world. Sure, we hear all sorts of ideas, and, and some of those ideas work out better than others. But so much of the evil and suffering that we experience and see in our world today, it isn't new. In essence, it's been around for, for hundreds and even thousands of years. That first verse that Ian read for us, again, is, is one of the most famous Advent verses in the Bible. Let me read it for us. Isaiah 9 Verse 2, and the prophet writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. The prophet Isaiah is, is foretelling Jesus' coming. This was written hundreds of years before the first advent, before Jesus did come, but he saw it in advance. He saw it coming. We can't just pull this verse out and talk about just it this morning. We need to understand why it's here. So if you have your Bible in front of you and you're in Isaiah 9, flip back just a couple of verses and we'll see the, the world that this prophecy was spoken into. We'll see why we needed a light from God. See, at the end of chapter 8, we read that the people were looking to their magicians, to their mediums, to their, their uh, fortune tellers, to their psychics for all the answers instead of to God. They had rejected the wisdom of God. They were, they were acting in ignorance. They were looking to the wisdom of the world to solve their biggest problems. And so as we see at the end of chapter 8, we see this people were looking towards the earth. But what does it say they were finding? Distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. That's the context that this, this verse is spoken into, that, that light is coming, light will shine. See, the thing is, they, the people in Isaiah 8, the people there, they, they knew there was a problem. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been going to their magicians and mediums, their fortune tellers and psychics, to find answers. They wouldn't have been digging into the wisdom of the world to find answers. They knew something was wrong. But they assumed they could get themselves out of it by themselves. Does that sound familiar at all? How many press conferences and updates recently have you watched online or, or on the news or whatever where one of the key messages that you hear is, we're all in this together? And I would say I, I, I quite wholeheartedly agree with the statement as it speaks to us, working together to whatever the cliche is, slow the spread, stop the spike, bend the curve of COVID-19, whatever that is. We, we are... Uh, working together to try to, to control and understand what's happening through COVID-19. But the biggest problem facing humanity today is not COVID-19. As big as that is, and we don't want to downplay that, but the biggest problem facing the world today is spiritual darkness, ignorance, if you will. It's, it's looking to ourselves instead of looking outside of ourselves. 
that's the ultimate problem. In his book, uh, Hidden Christmas, which I'm kind of using and leaning on a fair bit through this series, uh, Tim Keller recalls seeing an ad in the New York Times some time ago that said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Those slogans could have been written any time. We've heard them in the last weeks, haven't we? In other words, Keller says, the ad is saying that we have the light within us. So we're the ones that can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty and injustice and violence and evil. If we just work together, we can create a world of peace and unity. Humanity has always thought this. One other had noted that in every age of history, humanity has sought some sort of righteous form of government to lead it and to make everything right. But the depravity, says, of every nation has made it impossible. And then he traces us back through history. He starts with the Egyptians that built this amazing empire but used slaves to build their pyramids. He takes us through the Assyrians, through the Greek Empire, through the Roman Empire, which was then uh, overtaken by the barbarians in Europe. He points at the the divine right of kings that, that dominated Christendom during the Middle Ages and said, you know what, the government was only as good or as bad as the morals of that king. Then he points to even to the American Revolution that created a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and yet is still flawed. And points as well towards communism that has left tens if not hundreds of millions of bodies in its wake. Every system we've created to solve the problems has been found wanting. Vaclav Havel, the first president of the Czech Republic, uh, came out of a a socialist communist world into a a, a capitalistic democratic world, and he was not optimistic that either would by itself solve the greatest of the human problems. And so he says this, kind of in conclusion, he says, the pursuit of the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. He says a turning to and a seeking of God is what's needed. And he says, The human race constantly forgets that he himself is not God. See, that's also kind of the the world that we are looking at in Isaiah chapter 8. They'd, They'd forgotten God. That's where we are today as well. If we keep looking inside ourselves to solve these these massive problems. We need something outside to break into the darkness. And so Keller sort of concludes in the introduction to his book, which I posted on my social media this week. He says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. He says, it does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers that say we can fix this if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. But the message of Christianity is instead things are really bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice it doesn't say, from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. This light has come from outside. So he says, the light 
is coming from outside of the world. And Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. John writes that for us as well in John chapter 8. And so in just a few verses, we'll get to see what kind of light is as, as Jesus has these impressive titles put on him. But first, a couple of words about light. When we read in this verse, light dawning, the prophet is, is very purposefully pointing towards an image of the sun and the sun coming up. Now, the, the good thing about the winter and the days getting shorter and shorter is it's a lot easier to catch a sunrise, isn't it? And I know that there are at least a few of you watching that catch them regularly because I see them on your social media. When was the last time you were up and watched the sun come out? Uh, this morning, I, I happened to see kind of the lights light up in the, in the kitchen, and then I hop in my car to drive down. The sky down the valley just blew up with colors, orange and pinks and purples. But when was the last time you went out maybe with a camera to catch that first light? I've done it only a few times because it's usually pretty early. But it's just an amazing experience. It starts with the, the cold and quiet of the dark. And then maybe a couple of songbirds, well, not now, but in the, in the summer, as we were camping in the backyard, uh, the songbirds started to sing way too early. But then slowly light starts to come over the horizon and burst through the mountains, and the colors just light up the sky. See, Isaiah is using the sun as a symbol for us. He's, he's reminding us, and he's, he's pointing us to the reality that sunlight brings life and truth and beauty. One of the pieces of evidence we have for the existence of God is just how, how fine-tuned the universe is. And so we want to start by looking at how the sun gives life. One example of the fine-tuning of our universe that we know is that uh, if the earth were just a little bit farther away from the sun, we would all freeze. And if it was just a little bit closer to the sun, we would burn up. And we know that, that the sun is the source of all life. Without it, all the plants die, and without plants, we all die. Similarly, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that, that only in God do we live and move and have our being. Without God, we don't have those things. Without sun, we don't have physical light either. Later, uh, Paul writes to the Colossians that, that in Jesus, in the light, all things hold together. See, we are, we are meant to be in a relationship with God. It's what we are created for. That's what, that's what they're talking about in Acts, that only in God do we, we live and move and have our being. That's where we're supposed to be. But according to the Bible, we, we have lost that original, abundant, right relationship with God. And we can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. And because we've also chosen to go our own way, because we've, we've chosen ignorance, to ignore God, that's why we face physical and spiritual death. But the sun gives life. The second thing we see is that the sun actually shows us the truth. The problem with darkness, the problem with being in the dark is that you can't see anything. Sure, maybe you can fumble around blindly. Maybe you can tiptoe around your house without crashing into too many things because you sort of know the layout. But if you were to hop in your car on a dark moonless night and try and go for a drive, it wouldn't go well. We need light to see things the way they really are, to see truth. And the Bible tells us that God is the source of all truth, that unless we use that light, 
that unless we use that truth to look at the world around us, we will still be ultimately fumbling around in darkness. I saw a a sermon clip and quote this week posted on on Twitter by uh, Tony Evans, who gave this impassioned plea to his church saying, essentially, listen, if we're going to try and solve all the problems of this world by first looking to to academia, looking to papers, to looking at at sciences, to all these things, if we're going to do all that first, we are going to the wisdom of the world first. We're never going to make it. We need to start with the truth. We need to start with the Bible and then use that wisdom to carry on and, and look at other wisdom that God has given us, but be, be founded on the Bible in order to make sense of the world around us. 1 John chapter 1 also tells us that God, again, is the source of all truth. That means as well that uh, the reason we can know anything is because God created us with a mind and gave us the ability to think and reason. On the flip side, this also means that if if God is the source of all truth, we couldn't actually know anything or know anything about him unless he reveals it to us because it comes from him. Now, fortunately, he does reveal himself to us through creation, through the Bible, through his son. The son shows truth. Third, the son is beautiful. Again, this fall, there were, there were several mornings where the skies just erupted in color. Even when uh, first thing in the morning, I was looking out the window the other way, looking towards the west-ish. With the sunrise behind me, you could see the, the trees light up and just kind of glow in colors that, that were just fantastic. And I don't know about you, but, but those moments, the, the, the moment of a good sunrise, and again, I'm thankful that they happen around, you know, 7, 30, 8 o'clock these days as opposed to some really, really early hour, but those moments spark joy in me. They're, they're filled with beauty. They, they, they make even worship erupt in my heart. See, the, the sun brings joy. The sun brings beauty. It's not a coincidence this time of year around us where the days are getting shorter and shorter that, that mental health issues go up, that depression rises. We actually need light. We need the sun for joy. The light that's dawning in Isaiah 9, this is the light that is the source of all beauty and all joy. Again, Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says, By him all things were created through this light, including beauty and joy. Augustine famously wrote that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He's saying that that even if you think you're finding joy in something else, that joy can actually, actually and ultimately be traced back to God. That thing you love is actually because God has put his thumbprint on it. That it's actually, it's something that bears God's signature and you love it. It's supposed to draw you and point you to him. Keller helpfully concludes here that all joy is really found in God. And anything you do enjoy is a derivative because it comes from him. What you're really looking for, though, is him, whether you know it or not. The sun brings life and truth and beauty. Joy comes with that. Jump down with me to verse 6. Again, Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Interesting, it doesn't say it will crumble. His shoulders will crumble under that weight. 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This dawning or literally flashing of light in verse 2 takes shape in this other, maybe most famous Advent verse. The light has come because for, for to us a child is born. To, to us a son is given. It's critical again to notice that it doesn't say from us a child is born or, or by us a child is born. This son has come from outside. It's come from outside of us. It's come to us from, from somewhere else. The child will be like us, yes, but ultimately not like us. And he came for us. Just like the shepherds were told in Luke chapter 2, a text we'll get to in coming weeks for sure. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. This child brings the light. And look at these titles that he has given. Wonderful counselor. He, he can do supernatural things. He will be filled with wisdom Mighty God, this is someone who is powerful. This, this child will be divine in the language. There's, there's no doubt in the Hebrew that this will be God come to earth. Everlasting Father, this is someone who, who cares about the people of the world. This is someone who existed in eternity past and will exist into eternity future. And the Prince of Peace, this is a ruler characterized by peace. There is nothing like this in any other major religion. God becoming human. And so I love this challenge where we hear that it's almost too limiting to say that we celebrate Christmas. Instead, we should look at passages like this and look at what God has done and instead stare dumbstruck, lost in wonder and love and praise. If I can just break out into prayer for a second, dear Lord, in this Advent season, would you renew our hearts with, with wonder and love and praise? And because I love that word, just leave us dumbstruck of all that you've done for us. Now, the implications of, of God being born into our world are immense, and we're going to keep working through them for the next several weeks. But let me start by, by presenting these two sort of implications of, of what we've just read. If Jesus Christ, the light, really is mighty God and of everlasting Father, like we just read, then you can't just like him. This isn't just going on Facebook and clicking the little thumbs up button and saying, okay, Jesus, we're good. I, I like this. If, if you've been around the Bible for a little while, if you, you've you read the Bible, if you've seen kind of what it speaks and how it speaks of, of Jesus and the Gospels especially, how do people usually react when they first realize who Jesus really is? Are, are their reactions moderate? Does anyone just sort of shrug Jesus off? Think about Peter in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when he gets just a glimpse of who Jesus is. He says, depart from me. Go away, Jesus, because I am a sinful man. See, usually when people realize what Jesus was saying about himself, they're, they're either furious with him because he's calling himself God. They're, they're scared because they've realized that their position, they're, they're standing when compared to him as God. Or they just fell at his feet and worshipped him. Nobody really understood 
who Jesus was or what he was saying about himself, even in a, in a small way and just casually walked away and said, you know, that, he's a really nice guy. I, I really like him. He just makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. C.S. Lewis popularized this with his, his trilemma, saying that Jesus left us with only three options. He's either a, a liar because he claimed to be God, knowing that he wasn't. He's a lunatic, uh, as Lewis says, on the level with a poached egg. I love how he says that. He, he, meaning Jesus thought he was God, but he was actually mad. He, he, he legitimately thought he was, but he wasn't. Or actually he was Lord. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. In fact, he is God. And Lewis reminds us that there, there really aren't any other options, nor did Jesus intend to leave us with any. See, if the baby born at Christmas is mighty God, then we're only really left with one option, and that is to serve him completely. And we'll come back to this in future weeks. The second implication, if Jesus is wonderful counselor and prince of peace, you should want to serve him. Again, consider what a counselor is. Someone you can, you can go to see when you're, you're working through something difficult. Or someone who has maybe, he walked through the same things and so they can, they either have the wisdom and tools to guide you through that season or they have experienced what you've experienced and so you're going to, to them for counsel so that you can also walk through those things and come out better on the other side. See, God being born in the manger, which is what Christmas is all about, gives us something that, that no other religion gives us or even claims to have. Christmas reminds us that we have a God that truly understands us because he has experienced everything we have. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, for we don't have a high priest, I guess speaking of Jesus, we don't have this lofty high priest, this God who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin, without sin, excuse me. Jesus knows. Keller helpfully says there's no other religion that says God has suffered, that God had to be courageous, that he knows what it's like to be abandoned by friends, to be crushed by injustice, to be tortured and die. Christmas shows that he knows what you're going through. When you talk to him through prayer, he understands. Dorothy Sayers similarly writes, he himself has, has come through the world, the whole, uh, the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life, anyone have any of those? To the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it was well worth his while. See, if Jesus is wonderful counselor and prince of peace, we, we want to serve him. We, we want to be around him. What amazing titles. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Do you see how, how this is wonderful? Do you see the, the beauty in this message? I don't know if you're watching online, you got a keyboard handy. Maybe give me an amen in the comments. There's no one, there's a couple in the back here that could do it, uh, but one of them is very German, so I don't expect him to. The other will. Jesus was mighty God. And yet, as we often sing, light of the world, you came down into darkness. 
opened our eyes and let us see. Jesus was willingly born into this world and to become like each one of us that he could fully know our darkness. He could fully sympathize with our weakness. And then he saved us from that darkness by going to the cross for us out of love like we talked a couple weeks ago when we looked at John 3.16. See, there is, there is beauty in this. There is beauty here, just like that explosion of a sunrise that makes you, makes you sit up and take notice. As we, as we sit and we dwell on this truth, as we meditate on, as we allow it to sort of run through our minds and through our worldviews and think, okay, what does it mean that, that, that first there's a God who cares, that there's a God who, who loves us, there's, there's this God that we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus didn't just start the world spinning and leave us to figure it out on ourselves and, and watch us laughing at us as we can't figure it out. But no, Jesus came and was one of us. He understood all these things. He was abandoned by friends by family. He understood poverty. He understood hard work. He understood the slivers of being a carpenter. He understood all of this. What would it look like if we start to actually find our meaning and, and, and value and purpose through this wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father, and mighty God? Keller, uh, finally, Keller says, in short, Jesus is the divine light of the world because he brings a new life to our spiritual deadness. Because he shows us, that the, shows us the truth that heals our spiritual blindness. Because he is the beauty that breaks our addictions to money and sex and power. As a wonderful counselor, he walks with us even into and through the shadow of death where no other companion can go. He is a light for us when all other lights go out. One last thing from the verses this morning. Look again at verse 6, where it says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We, we, were, we were given this. Jesus is a gift. And like all gifts, we have to be willing to accept and receive that gift. Ian read for us verse 5, so we'll jump back there and again and look what it says. It says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Saying, listen, that, that light's going to come. There's, there's going to be a battle. There's going to be a, a great battle with evil, with darkness. But the victory, it's not going to come through you. It's not going to come through me. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Someone else is going to fight on our behalf. Someone else will, will be our deliverer. And Isaiah, a few chapters later, tells us about this in chapter 53, where he says that he, our, our shepherd, this, this everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This child that was born went to the cross for you and me. He paid the price for our rebellion. 
It was his work on our behalf. It's not our work. It's not our striving. It's not our efforts. But it's through Jesus' work on the cross that God forgives us, accepts us, and then gives us even a second and greater gift of the Holy Spirit to work within us to make us new from the inside out. There has never been this great a gift for every single person everywhere, ever. See, Christmas isn't canceled. Lots of other things are. Gatherings might be. Sporting events might be. Whatever else, we all know the list. But Christmas means that, that, that we were so lost. We were the ones and are the ones fumbling around in darkness so unable to save ourselves and figure it out ourselves that, that nothing less than God himself, Jesus, coming to earth, living a perfect life in relationship to God and others and, and creation itself, nothing less than Jesus dying on a cross and being raised from the dead three days later to conquer the darkness and usher in the kingdom of life could ever save us. That means that you and I, yes, we're in this together, but we can't get out ourselves. It means we need to admit our weakness and accept this glorious gift of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these texts. Thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son. Jesus, thank you that, that you went to the cross for us, that you, you first lived a life that, that experienced all the things we experienced, but, but you lived it perfectly in perfect obedience to God the Father. Thank you that you went to the cross. Thank you that, that you died for our rebellion, that you died for our ignorance, that you died for our darkness. Thank you that you are ushering in light still today. If this is a, a day that maybe you want to start to experience that light of Jesus for the first time or again for the first time, you can just offer up a simple prayer and say, Jesus, I need light. I, I'm, I'm tired of trying to figure this out on my own. So Jesus, help me. God, speak to me. Give me, give me your wisdom, your truth. Uh, show me your, your light, your beauty. Jesus, make everything in me new. And we can pray that prayer in his name. Amen.